phone the comment line 1850-715-900. Now, continuing our look at the legacy of the 1913 lockout, I'm joined in studio by four contemporary leaders from the world of business, politics, media and trade unions to examine just how relevant the trade union movement is today, 100 years on from that clash between the workers and the employers of Dublin. In studio, Danny McCoy, Chief Executive of IBEC, Patricia King, Vice President of SIPTU, Labour Senator Ivana Bacic, and also here, Irish Independent Columnist Kevin Myers. Uh, Danny McCoy, first of all, the commemoration of the lockout has been largely led by the trade union movement that Jim Larkin launched. Yet it was the employers who won the battle when the lockout ended in 1914. Uh, do you think that there's somehow, it, it's a case of the losers get to write the history? Well, it would appear to be that, um, given the commemoration and the statue, as you say, of Larkin. But I think it's a, it's a wider it's a wider issue that the you know while while Murphy won, that was a fairly tragic uh, era. But we've we, the real issue is what lessons are we taking from that, and what does it mean for contemporary Ireland? Because you know that time, as the the series has pointed out, it wasn't just something that was happening here in Ireland. It was it was the end of a, an age of empire, one form of globalization. <coughs> the the nineteenth century was the globalization by countries. Twentieth century was a globalization by corporations. In the 21st century, it's the individual. And I think the lesson from that time, and we might discuss this, is that I don't think there was any appetite for socialism or collectivism in Ireland back then, 100 years ago, and I don't think it's here today. And so that's the lesson for me, that Irish people are very individualistic. They can act together, they'll, they'll share the inputs in the field, but they don't share the outputs of the harvest. But there was clearly an appetite for improved social conditions. That's indisputable. Absolutely. And those social conditions have been improved, arguably, from the capitalist model that Ireland actually ultimately pursued. Patricia King, as Vice President of SIP2, uh, you're at the heart of the trade union movement, which came together, I suppose, at least in, in the form of SIP2, uh, with both Larkin's Union, the Transport Union and the Workers' Union of Ireland, uh, which he formed in 1924. Uh, how much do you today and your fellow union leaders and trade union members, how much do you owe to, do you owe to James Larkin? Well, if you look very briefly at the nub of the issue that arose in that lockout, the nub of that issue was Larkin had organised workers um, and in that tram company he had organised workers with a view to representing them to improve their terms and conditions. And the employer, William Martin Murphy, said, uh, I won't negotiate with you in, uh, Mr. Larkin or the union, and I will uh, expect every worker to sign a pledge not to be in a union. And if they maintain their union membership or if they join a union, I'll sack them. Now, the reality uh, today in Ireland is 100 years later that there are a considerable number of employers who have a very uh, adult uh, relationship with our workers. Uh, they negotiate with unions, they develop collective agreements and there's a very balanced relationship between them. There are a considerable number of employers in Ireland which is a, just a fact of life uh, that do not have that relationship. Uh, they won't negotiate with unions. Uh, they don't regard it uh, proper or right that workers would have any say in their workplace. And they do expect them not to join a union. And they do threaten and victimise them if they go to, to be in a union, including sacking them. Now, if you look at that contrast uh, in terms of how have we moved on, I have to say now I would uh, disagree entirely with Danny's point about the individualism. I think that is not true. It was not true in, in 1913 and it's not true now. I mean, if you think about 1913 and the lockout, 20,000 people 
who took part across various employers uh, were defeated by starvation, effectively. Uh, that's what Murphy and the employers did. They starved them into defeat. But can you imagine going back to the tenements where you lived in the most appalling conditions and yet to fight for a living wage and to fight to feed your family, that you were prepared to go out and fight and, and be sacked for to do that Kevin, so that you could have the right to join a union. Kevin Myers, is there a defence that can be made uh, for William Martin Murphy on the basis that perhaps it wasn't trade unionism that he objected to so much as Larkin's own form of leadership? I don't need to answer that question. You said it for me. That is the precise the problem. William Martin Murphy did recognise trade unions. He said that uh, trade unions had a proper place in the workforce and that the only way you could a, a business could do business with its employees was through trade unions. It was Larkinism and the formation of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. And the, the syndicalism which Larkin represented, which was to bring about the destruction of capitalism. This is why uh, the, Labour, the, the, the trade union conference in, in London in December 19. Uh, 13 collapsed and why a subsequent conference in, in Dublin collapsed when uh, Larkin called for a, a general strike to bring down about the downfall of capitalism and people said this is absurd. He returned to, to, to Dublin and uh, he tried the same tactic and Havelock Wilson of the, the Sailors and Firemen's Union said we can't work with you, we entered the strike in support with you but you're impossible. You're trying to bring down capitalism and this trade union movement is not in the business of destroying capitalism. Everyone knows at that time working class people needed to have trade unions. It was a historical necessity. I just don't think that historical necessity applies anymore. But we shouldn't gild the kind of... Um, history that Larkin bequeathed to Ireland. He was not a popular man at the time. When he ran for election in 1926 in North Dublin, reaching from the Quays up to Fibsborough, he got 9,000 votes out of 92,000. And included in the area where he didn't get the votes were the heartlands of the strike, the, the tenements, the squalid tenements we all know about. He was not popular and people did not back him. But he was a dynamic man. There's but no doubt I, about that. Ivan Abachi, yeah, just to, to put you in on that one. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm just, I, I'm slightly confounded by Kevin's uh, reading of history. I think if one looks at the big picture of 1913, as Patricia says, this was a story, uh, the reason why the legacy is so powerful today for citizens all over our republic is that it had, it had such a pivotal part to play in the foundation of our republic. And I think that's the bigger picture. It wasn't just about trade unions. It was about conditions. It was about the human rights and the living conditions of the people of Dublin in particular, but indeed all over Ireland, who were being starved, as Patricia says, by brutal tactics of the employers at the time. And, you know, one can talk about the minutiae of the trade union leaders of the time. The, the bigger picture, which we're seeing today, 100 years on, is that the legacy of that, I think, has brought about, and I disagree with Danny, it's brought about a, a strong tradition of communitarianism in Irish society. I think that um, there's been a, a strength in trade unions. I think we've seen a, a, an enormous increase in the rights of workers, quite rightly, over the 100 years since. But there's still a great need for trade unions and still a great need but before, for yeah, organisations to represent the rights of workers. That hasn't changed. But of course, you know, 100 years on, the living conditions of people, if you look back to Henrietta Street, if you look at the sort of, um, you know, commemorations that have been carried on in the arts and in theatre and so on, where they're re revisiting those 
appalling living conditions where people were starving, where people, infants were dying in the tenements and the slums of Dublin. You know, of course, uh, the, the tactics of William Martin Murphy and his employers should be condemned outright Martin today. Martin Murphy did not and create w- the And should have been condemned outright. No, 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 but Kevin, Kevin, no, no, I didn't interrupt you, Kevin. If you look at the pot created the tenements, it was it was landlords, it was appalling behaviour by the, by the landlords, it was the neglect of large swathes of the of the city, it was allowing the buildings to fall into uh, into the sort of dereliction that, uh, and, and yet allowing people to live in them in large conditions. People had to organise together. It was part of a much bigger battle going on across Europe at the time to in, to uh, for workers to uh, organise together and to ensure better living conditions, not just within the workplace, but living conditions for the families Patricia, and the children in those slums and tenements. Just reading a piece by Des Garrity, uh, a former colleague of yours, former president of SIP2, indeed, in yesterday's Irish Times supplement on the lockout, he says that the strong, impetuous personality of Larkin sent shockwaves to the ranks of the employers and it also won him very few friends among the older British-based unions and there was a sense that he underestimated uh, Murphy on the basis that Murphy was a very strong-willed character who hated dealing or being bullied and that's how Larkin was seen on the other side. Yeah, I I think um, that there are, certainly it is right that people would talk about the personality of Larkin and by all accounts, Sean, uh, whoever you read on it would indicate that Larkin had um, a difficult enough personality. Uh, The person I would speak most to uh, as a historian on this would be Parik Yates and he's very well advised on these matters and uh, Parik, I would say, is one of the best uh, speakers on it. Now, I think notwithstanding that, uh, the point that is being made about, you know, uh, Murphy said he wouldn't deal with trade union. He would deal with trade unions. He wouldn't deal with Larkin. Um, to some degree, that is a sham in a sense. And it goes on today as well. There are big employers in this state uh, who will demonise the trade union leader uh, as an excuse not to do proper business uh, with the people. They don't need to demonise them. They come uh, in here as multinationals that just don't deal with unions. Indi- and well, in they, fairness they, now too, in fairness, I'm talking about, you know, there there is a side of Irish society and indeed in within Irish labour that doesn't come to the fore at all. I mean, for instance... Um, Kevin talks about, you know, capitalism and so on. Capitalism does a very good job of of, uh, of showing its own bad sides as well uh, by virtue of how it behaves. In this state, for instance, today, we have a minimum wage of 8.65. I can tell you that the Labour inspectors of this country that goes out in 2012 inspected uh, 1,200 places of employment and only 51% of the employers were not paying the minimum wage. There was under a half a million unpaid wages that that inspectorate had to find and give back to those workers. Now, what does that tell you about what's going on in Irish society? That tells you that that type of behaviour it's still acceptable. Employers are still prepared to behave like that. And that's really a bad story, Kevin. Back to you, uh, Danny McCoy, uh, Chief Executive of IBEC. And before you deal with that point Patricia King makes, I suppose there was a certain sense as well about Larkin's personality. I mean, William Martin Murphy mightn't have liked to deal with them or his tactics and so forth. But to quote O'Casey, as as Des Garrity does yesterday, uh, he talks about, you know, Larkin, as only Jim Larkin could speak, uh, he had a way. uh, Here was a man who would put a flower in a vase on a table as well as a loaf on a plate. He was clearly somebody who was very charismatic and had great leadership qualities. Certainly, and uh, so that charisma comes true. But again, it's a matter of interpretation whether you consider that to be for a good or for a a bad cause. 
I, I really believe this idea that collectivism in Ireland has long roots. It doesn't. In fact, it's quite the opposite in my view. And I, and I still go back to the point is that when you talk about the rights that have been achieved over the 20th century, they're individual rights. They're individual rights of people to choose to be in a trade union, but there's also the choice for employers about whether they wanted to engage collectively with workers. They certainly engage with the workers as an individual, and individuals are protected for rights. And to Patricia's point there, I'd be very surprised if that, you know, the idea that there's 50% of uh, employers that might be left there that are, are not complying with the law. I'm sure that there's a particular sample there that they were looking at those employers and what they actually found was that only half of the ones they thought were actually not paying the minimum wage were doing so. You know, So again, we, when you look across individuals that have the rights in this society and those rights are protected in the vast majority of cases. Ivan Abacic, there's another point as well that um, I think it's something like 30% of the Irish workforce belong to trade unions, which would suggest that people have to be, they're either being very well looked after or they're not persuaded of the value of trade union membership. Well, I think there's an interesting thesis about that, which I think is, you know, is, is right, which is that in a sense, unions have been victims of their own success. You know, again, I would disagree with Danny that rights are expressed as individual. Yes, they may be expressed in law as individual rights, but they've been fought for and gained through collective action by the trade union movement and by political movements, which have sought I mean, there's no sure. uh, dis- disagreeing with that. And I think the fact is, if you look at the body of employment law rights we currently have in Ireland, many of them, um, you know, um, with their basis in European directives, but again, European Union uh, movement on this has been very much uh, pushed and and uh, and persuaded by the collective trade union movement at European level. And I think the fact is that we now have a very um, a much, a very well-developed body of employment law rights, a minimum floor of rights. And as a result, people see less need for unions. And uh, coupled with that in Ireland, of course. You've had 22 years of social partnership agreement at national level and I know the thesis is that you know trade unions as their role grew at national level and their influence uh, at government level grew, so in a way at individual workplace level um, the membership fell fell because people could see they were getting enough security and enough rights through the effort, efforts of the unions at national level without having to engage locally in unions. I think that's a large part of it. I also think there's a big factor in, uh, you know, with the changing in our, the Irish employment patterns. Multinationals coming in, very well-educated workforces. I'm mean, thinking of some of the big um, IT firms that have come in. You know, less need for unions where workers are much more powerful in the workplace by virtue of their own qualifications, by virtue of their own labour mobility. So there's clearly been, in some sectors, less of a need for unions perceived by the employees. But a lot of that has been because of the union's success in gaining ground at national level and through employment law protections at European and uh, and in, in Irish law. So I think this I think it's complex, Sean. You know, of, I, don't think it's, it, I don't think it shows a failure by unions. Uh, I think that's the key point. This point for you, Kevin Myers, from one caller. Sean, could you please tell Kevin Myers that capitalism is indeed good until it has to be bailed out by the workers' tax? That's from Noel in North Farland. It wasn't wasn't capitalism has been bailed out. The entire economy has been bailed out, whatever part of the economy uh, we we come from. Everyone knows capitalism is the basis of, uh, of this society. It was the breaking of capitalist laws which brought ruin to us, that we had regulations which were ignored. Well, we had if you, a lack of regulation. No, no, was was, uh, we had lack of regulation. And as a result, we've nationalised no, uh, You did, uh, you did reprove profit. me for I- interrupting you. Yes, you didn't correct. You. Okay. Uh, it was, I, I, the issue wasn't the lack of law, uh, regulation. The issue was the regulations that existed were not imposed. The regulator simply didn't do his job, was, was given 
um, a, a, a huge tax-free bonus and walked away into the sunset with a huge pension for the rest of his life, while the rest of us have to pay for the other. But this is not about Larkin and, and, and the lockout. I mean, one of the, the myths and the problem here about Larkin is the myth that he has created. And much of the myth is benign because it brings people together and works and, and, and so on and achieves rights in the workplace. But a key issue is that the Irish trade union, for example, opposed equal pay for women. And the only reason we got equal pay for women was because the Europeans told us to, to impose equal pay. But the Irish trade union movement, Larkin's heirs, opposed equal pay. And that's the historical reality. And you're, Sean, you're looking puzzled because it's coming I'm surprise looking to here. Patricia King, well, actually, who's probably now, better versed on that yeah, than I am. In actual fact, now, Kevin, again... Uh, um, I know uh, the NUJ never did. I, I'd like to <laughs> occupy your world sometime because you have an entirely different take on the history than, than uh, me as an ordinary being on it. Uh, I mean, the fact of the matter is, uh, you're correct, there was a part of the Congress of Trade Unions had issues with uh, equal pay for a particular time. There was a very very, very strong women's committee uh, in the Congress of Tri Trade Unions uh, with very, what were eminent people uh, who fought very hard. No, they, they but, were but part you know the of point the Congress. I'm no, they were part of the Congress of Trade Unions. Uh, they were the voice uh, at every table, both nationally and indeed at European level. At that time, also, Europe was based on a social democratic model, which it's not today. And uh, the issue about, uh, you know, making the point that women got equality through Europe. Women got equality through Europe uh, because Europe set a directive based on all of the advocacy that came from member states, including Ireland and including very eminent women in this state, who, through the Congress of Trade Unions Women's Committee, made those. You are agreeing I, with me. I am Thank not you, agreeing Patricia, with you, Kevin. I'm not agreeing with you. You know the point you're making is not uh, uh, factually correct. There were people. There were people within the trade union movement at the time who had reservations. Uh, my own judgment is that was based on ignorance. But I can tell you the strong voice of the women's group within the Congress of Trade Union on the record, historically and everywhere, will sh tell the tale of the effort that went into achieving... But it was achieving. Europe that brought it about, uh, equality. They, went, they, Europe they advocated for the directive yeah. from Europe. That's where it came from, yes. The trade union movement but, didn't achieve But Kevin, the point is that to get EU directives into place, and that's the point I'm making, there needed to be a campaign of advocacy, of lobbying by a trade union movement, by a women's movement uh, yes, across but, Europe, but, but as across with other Europe, initiatives. But there was as such a wave of, of, of change that came along with our accession to the EC, uh, or the EEC in 1973, that's absolutely that there was right. an awful lot of undone work, if you like, back here. But and that would suggest that Kevin's right when he says that there was there was weak leadership looking for equality. Well, I'd be the first to say, I mean, there were certainly things that the unions were appeared to be resistant on at the time in Ireland, often because they were representing their membership at the time, which were largely male. And I don't think that was right. And I think it's fair to criticise unions for that. At the same time, it was the, the reason why we had European directives in the 70s, bringing in equal pay, bringing in maternity rights a little later, and now um, parental leave rights. Not to mention well. the marriage all bar of, going. All of the <laughs> All of these changes were brought about because within Europe, trade unions and the women's movement had been lobbying in individual countries and across the EU for change. So the change had, that was that was coming about was driven from below. I mean, you know, I think it's wrong to see the EU as this sort of top-down monolith. It acts on the basis of political change that's been brought about and lobbied for by advocacy groups and by lobby staying, groups and by national governments, which are acting on behalf of their citizens. So staying I think with that's yourself, an important part. Uh, at the time of the lockout, uh, the political and industrial voice of Labour were pretty much the same. Things are different now. 
um, aren't they? Now, as, as a Labour senator, do you think your your party is still a source of representation for workers? Yes, I do. But I don't think that we're any longer just a, a, a voice of representation of, of workers organised through trade unions. I think we're, we seek to be, obviously we are, a political party that's a national voice for, for, for people, for citizens generally across Ireland. So, you know, the origins and the roots of Labour lie in the trade union movement. But the big much broader than that now. Appeal by Pat Robert, I remember before he went into, was it the 2007 election? If you think Labour, vote Labour. And that is still a long way from happening. It was a big improvement, I suppose, the last time. Maybe it was... Well, <laughs> more people voting against uh, Fianna Fáil as opposed to pro-Labour. Well, you know, there's always been this, um, and Pat Rabbit, I think, vocalised it at the time, that an awful lot of people were thinking Labour, were approving of Labour policies, but were still often for family and for traditional reasons we're still voting for one or other of the two old civil war parties and I think that's always been the challenge for Labour and many people of course put it back to Labour standing aside in 1918 in that first general election and you know let Labour wait and that you know that that set the seed for the for the two party effectively the two and a half party status has often been called that we've had since so I think that's been a challenge for Labour all along is to encourage people who think Labour and who would in any other country be voting for the social democrat or socialist alternative to vote for the there is a fair de- deal or degree of disillusionment with, uh, and particularly among those people who did vote Labour the last time. We just have a clip here from the documentary series. It's from the playwright and author Peter Sheridan speaking about his issues with the Labour Party. It seems to me that you could make a huge parallel between what's happening now in Ireland and what happened in the period before the lockout. And that Larkin, and there's no Larkin, I'd figure, and the fact that the Labour movement in Ireland have bought into the idea that austerity is the only way forward and that we need to, as it were, trim our sails and cut back and do all of that stuff has been disastrous for Ireland. And we need a figure like Lark and we need somebody who's railing against the conditions that created this in the first place. Working class people are not responsible for bank debt. That's just to me an absolute given. And you can't defend that position. And all I see in the supposed radical voices within the Labour movement right now. I've become completely disillusioned with the Labour Party in the last four or five years, I have to say. And I've always been a big supporter of the left in Ireland. But I really have. Become, and the only voice I hear, Sinn Féin, is the only voice that I hear saying something that's not part of the accepted ideology at the moment. That's Peter Sheridan. Your response, Ivana Bacic. Well, I don't accept that analysis. I think it is always difficult for a smaller party in a coalition government. We obviously came into coalition in 2011 in particularly difficult circumstances where we were um, signed up to a Troika programme. Um, I think Labour in government, we, as, as the smaller party in the coalition, has stood firm on certain issues. We have seen the restoration of the minimum wage. I mean, Patricia speaks about difficulties with enforcement, but the point was at least we brought it back up, which was a key, a key issue for many of the lowest paid workers. We restored the joint Labour Commission wage setting agreement which brought 200,000 people uh, back into that uh, mechanism so that was hugely important we're standing firm on no reduction in, in basic social protection and social welfare rates so we're you know and yeah, we're, and we're looking to move on the issue of collective bargaining rights yeah, I was about to mention issue. that yeah and I mean just you know when we're talking about the legacy of 1913 that to me is now a key issue and you know the government is committed to that it's in the programme for government we're also obliged of course the European Court of Human Rights has recognised collective bargaining as an essential element uh, the right to collective bargaining as, a, as an essential element of the freedom of association. Our own courts, of course, notoriously have have taken a more restrictive view of the freedom of association in our own constitution. But I think this is a key issue that this government must address and will address. Would it have any problems for you, Danny McCoy, as head of IBEC, uh, moving ahead with the recognition of uh, free collective bargaining? Well, the first thing to acknowledge is that collective bargaining is 
uh, exists in Ireland. People, voluntary collective bargaining exists and lots of employers and lots of unions engage in voluntary collective bargaining. It's the issue of mandatory collective bargaining is, is the problem. And so one of the, you know, one of the history lessons we got from the last hundred years is anything that comes mandatory in the industrial relations space often has unintended consequences, which never t- turned out to be positive. So looking at the experience in the UK, the trade union movement and so on, that one of the virtues that Ireland is a small open economy that is competing internationally, having the most flexibility in every aspect of our industrial relations and corporate world helps us succeed. So it's not against collective bargaining, it's against the mandatory aspect of that. Yeah. Um, I, I would just say that um, Danny is, um, I think, being a little bit light in relation to the reality on the ground on this collective bargaining. Um, he's right to say that some companies collectively bargain. There is a real issue. Uh, the law in this land um, in relation to the right of workers to collectively bargain is has been actually decimated um, by virtue of the recent the Supreme Court judgment on the 2004 Act. Now, what is required and what the trade union movement requires uh, of the Labour Party and indeed other like-minded political parties is to support a piece of legislation, bring it through, that workers can have without fear, uh, can collectively bargain with their employer on a balanced playing pitch and that they are not uh, in the situation that they currently are in where the bar is so low for the employers they don't have to collectively bargain at all and that's okay by the law and workers actually uh, if they put their nose up at all uh, where they're dealing with hostility from an employer have actually no voice at all Kevin and even fear what do you think is the value of trade unions at the present time i'm not sure it's very valuable if you're in the public service because you're guaranteed um uh, you've got a voice in, in government and the equivalent of the croke park deal deal there's a fantasy uh, world out there which Patricia inhabits where you've got exploitative employers when or, in Not the private fantasy, sector that you have you have in the the real economic world collapsing employment everywhere if you go down any main street in a, any Irish town you'll see empty shops boarded up shops we have a collapsing economy oh, and no, that's Kevin, not the, that, no no I did Kevin, not interrupt no, either you, one of you, you I'm sorry ref- I, I, I'm sorry I have to I haven't spoken in a while world. I'm sorry I have yeah. not I you have not I let you back in Patricia just in a moment so you referred to my fantasy world earlier on I'm just using your own language. The fact is we have a collapsing economy in the private sector and in the private sector it's not unionised. We heard Peter Sheridan saying we need another Larkin which is precisely what we don't need. He brought working class to disaster in a confrontation that achieved nothing. It was the creation of the trade union movement in the 1920s and 30s which was the great achievement, not Larkin's confrontation which was badly planned and badly led. And he was against contrary to what people are saying, he was against collective bargaining. That's why the whole thing collapsed in 1913, in December 1913. The t- other trade unions said, we will not support you because you're opposed to collective bargaining. Now, collective bargaining is a legitimate and appropriate way w- with dealing in- with management issues. But don't present James Larkin what he w- as what he was not, it- which is a supporter of collective bargaining. I, he was an opponent of it. I, and that's think, why everything fell apart in December 1913. I think you're the one, Kevin, who's give it, <laughs> ascribing motives and views to James Larkin. I think it's always a dangerous thing to start doing, to say if James Larkin was living now, what would he support? I think it's very clear now. Yeah, it's it's very clear that. now. Well, yes, he did. And, and uh, uh, well, actually, he didn't. He was talking about James, the need for a James Larkin figure in the context of the economy and the political situation now. You're talking about um, the issue of collective bargaining. And as I say, I think now there is a recognition across Europe that the right to collective bargaining
bargaining is an essential element of the uh, of the freedom of association. Contrary to what Danny says, it hasn't hurt employment or FDI, foreign direct investment, coming into other EU states, nor should it in Ireland. And indeed, as I said earlier, you know, many of the companies which have come in, particularly the big IT companies, the big companies in uh, in biotech and so on, the conditions and the terms for their workforce are excellent, and but, they have nothing to fear. But if any, foreign direct, just on the foreign direct investment piece for a moment, Ireland is disproportionate than any other European country in terms of foreign direct investment. And the nature of the investment that has come in is being, is going back to my point about globalisation. It's the globalisation of the individual that's happening. The, the individual rights are here, but they don't see any truck in getting in third party trade unions to come into the workforce but, but Danny, they've nothing, to have I, their collective I think rights. The experience they have staff else, representative uh, committees uh, and so on. I think yeah. the experience elsewhere in Europe, though, shows that there is nothing to fear. Where, where are the terms and conditions in oh, a workforce oh, I think, are so I think the sclerosis in Europe and, and, over the last number of generations can, can, can quite well, equally be put back onto Danny, the hands of the trade union yeah, movement but Danny, having a grip across Europe. Let's face it, in very simple terms, most people agree that workers are entitled to, to be treated fairly, to be treated with respect in their workplace. And work is inherently a part of the dignity of the person. Now, where collective bargaining happens, where the employers and employees have a regular balanced relationship, good things happen. You know that. Uh, Good agreements happen. Problems arise, people try to solve the problems. It is where the relationship is entirely imbalanced, where the employer totally dominates. And there isn't any real point in trying to suggest, for instance, where the employer has representative bodies. You know very well, and there are very big employers in this town that operate it, whereby those representative bodies are represented by the employer dominates everything. They pick the people who go on the committees, they pick the outcome, uh, and if you go against the employer, you will actually are and in are fear you rolling of over against that? And I am saying to you, uh, we have, in as we speak today, five disputes in this state on that subject. Now, they don't get lights. They're small enough employments. People don't really pay a lot of attention to it. But to answer your question, are we rolling over? Would we have those disputes operating? We would not uh, if... We were rolling over. We will never roll over on it. And the big issue in this year of 2013 is the delivery by the government of collective bargaining. And that's the big task for the Labour Party in relation to its relationship with the trade union movement. Yeah, Danny McCoy. it's a task we're ready to rise to. You know? Well, I, th- I think that... You have your reservations, I, I think the people of Ireland have their reservations on, on that type of approach and I have, have expressed that over the last century, by the way, they vote politically, they vote as individuals and, and while they'll share inputs and are, are will get into causes, they don't want anything that makes it mandatory and makes collectivism come into this economy. Kevin Myers, another caller, is saying uh, Larkin and Connolly were challenging a wealthy class who assumed a right to maintain their wealth by keeping everyone else in poverty. Does Kevin Myers think Larkin would have got anywhere by asking nicely. We could do it a few Larkin and Connolly types now. Well, I don't know what the caller is saying. Larkin got nowhere. He, he brought ruin to any countless thousands of, of his followers. Larkin and he fell out in Croydon Park in January 1914 um, when there was a rally to ask Larkin to stay and not go off to America. James Connolly said he should go to America and stay in a long time in America because he needed a break. Connolly wanted rid of, of Larkin because they were alpha males who were in contest with one another. The problem about Larkin and, and, uh, and Connolly is that they are myths and they live as myths and not the reality of the men they actually were. We'll come back to this after a short break. Today with Sean O'Rourke on RTE Radio 1. 
If you want to cut food waste, try not to go shopping on an empty stomach, as you'll nearly always end up buying loads more than you need. And shopping is easier without the kids around too, because it's amazing what you'll give into buying once pester power kicks Mom, in. Mom, Mom. There are so many ways to cut food waste at safefood.eu in partnership with the EPA. Safe food. Be safe, be healthy, be well. RTE Radio 1. The National Theatre of Great Britain presents War Horse, a heartwarming story of a boy's brave journey to reunite with his beloved horse. Hailed by the Sunday Times as the theatre event of the decade, War Horse brings astonishing life-sized puppets to breathing, galloping, charging life on stage. This breathtaking show arrives at the Borgosh Energy Theatre for four weeks only from March 26th, 2014. Tickets on sale now. Entertainment updates with RTE Radio 1. Tweet at Today SOR. And you can text 51551. Kevin Myers, do you think uh, there should be an automatic right for workers say, in Ryanair to be able to use free collective bargaining in dealing with Michael O'Leary? No, there is no automatic right to free collective bargaining. I, I, I personally prefer within an organisation for the workforce to be able to to get together and negotiate with the management. I don't see necessarily there's a collective right for an outside agency such as a trade union movement to interpose itself between management and, and, and the workers. If the, the power is such that trade unions can do that, then so be it. But we've seen that in the, the productive part of the private economy, the multinationals, non-unionised, are very successful. That doesn't mean the workers are not represented because they have workers' councils. And that's a very productive way. And it also means that you, you haven't got the political agenda of a trade union movement interposing itself in, in the workplace. There might have been a place historically for um, trade unionism being politically active. I see that, no reason anymore for that kind of thing. The flaw, if I might say so, Sean, in that, and it indicates to me that maybe Kevin has a very different understanding of what trade unionism is, because... Trade unions are made up of their members. If I go into a workplace when I leave this studio and I meet a group of members uh, and they have an issue, they will decide based on, they will ask for advice, but they will decide what the outcome will be. And they will make that decision. That is what the trade union, the trade union is its members. In our own case in SIP2, we've 200,000 members. Those members are the movement, not a suit or somebody with lipstick. Those people are the membership. So, and they make up the movement. And one of the legacies in relation to the lockout, and I think it shouldn't be uh, dismissed, is that 10 years, in 1923, 10 years after the lockout, the Irish Transport and General Workers Union had 129,000 members. Now, that didn't happen by accident. And if it was such a big failure, and if pe people in Dublin and in Ireland at that time had decided that the trade union movement and Larkin, what he had done, was spent, they wouldn't have joined Patricia, you're and right been about the figure you just gave is 100% right. And in, during the following 10 years, Larkin was absent. It was built up by Walter O'Brien and other trade unionists. William. Okay. William O'Brien, I'm sorry. And, but, uh, and coming right up to the present day, Danny McCoy, surely you as an employer leader are heartily grateful to the discipline shown by trade union leaders and members in accepting the kind of restraint, cutbacks, uh, loss of pension entitlements or reductions therein uh, right across the public sector and indeed in the private sector as well. That mightn't have been possible to arrange or to achieve without the involvement of trade unions. And I think that's true. And, and Patricia says, right, it's also down to the workers that are, are in those trade unions, but more widely because the proportion of trade unions is quite low. No, the amount of adjustments gone on in the economy has gone down to the individuals involved because 
they, unlike 100 years ago, they're educated, know the circumstance they're in. In fact, they're all individual capitalists supplying their own labour and want to supply it. They lack collectively and a, and a voluntarist tradition they can do. And if they don't want to, to do that, they should be free but to do it. So no mandatory collective bargaining. It's an interesting way to view unions as a collective of individual capitalists, I must say. And that's, that's a very exactly what they are. Agree I mean, I've the union movement e- is professionalised as well. And say, third parties coming in very briefly. I've been a union member all my working life. I've negotiated as a member of a section committee within workplaces. And it's not a third party coming in. It's workers negotiating on behalf of themselves with their employer. But the union is a mechanism for doing that and always has been. And the need for that remains. Ivana Bacic, Kevin Morris, Patricia King, Danny McCoy, thank you all for being with us. And uh, just to remind you, that um, that f- the final episode, episode six in the series Citizens Lockout 1913 to 2013, an Athena media production made with the support of the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, is on air tomorrow at 6pm on RTE Radio 1. And there's a web page also on the RTE site for the project. We'll take a break. Today with Sean O'Rourke on RTE Radio 1.